Good morning. Welcome to the Unitarian Church of Edmonton. It is lovely to have you with us on this uh, such a warm morning after the last couple of weeks. The Unitarian Church of Edmonton is a liberal, multi-generational religious community. We celebrate a rich mosaic of free-thinking, spiritually questing individuals joined in common support and action. We welcome diversity, including diversity in beliefs from divine believers to humanists, from pagans to atheists to agnostics. We believe in the compassion of the human heart and the warmth of community and the pursuit of justice and the search for meaning in our lives. We gather this morning in gratitude on the traditional Cree lands that are now part of Treaty 6 and shared by many nations. A treaty is an inheritance, a responsibility, and a relationship. May we be good neighbors to one another, good stewards to our planet, and good ancestors to all of our children. If you are new here, we invite you to stay afterwards for coffee hour to get to know us. And if you have not already done so, please visit our visitor's desk just across the hall. They have lots of useful information there. And so as we begin this special hour together, I invite you to quiet your electronic devices so that we can enjoy the service fully. And we'll begin with a time of contemplation and music. And we were supposed to, we were promised that we would have a guest violinist today, but he's not here. So scrambling quickly and thinking about the theme of racism and what have you, the best I could come up with was Oscar Peterson plays Gershwin. Thank you. 
The opening words are one of my favorites from Richard Gilbert. We bid you welcome who come with weary spirits seeking rest, who come with troubles that are too much with you, who come hurt and afraid. We bid you welcome who come with hope in your heart, who come with anticipation in your step, who come proud and joyous. We bid you welcome who are seekers of a new faith, who come to probe and explore, who come to learn. We bid you welcome who enter this hall as a homecoming, who have found here room for your spirit, who find in this people a family. Whoever you are, whatever you are, wherever you are on the journey, we bid you welcome. I'd like to invite Kathy Stanley to come up and light our chalice this morning. Thank you, Kathy. Our opening hymn this morning is number 389, Gathered Here in the Mystery of this Hour. I invite you to rise as you're willing or able and join in singing. We'll do it through three times, I guess. I mentioned uh, part of the reason why we're doing the theme of racism this month is because it's Black History Month, and I feel uniquely unqualified to talk in depth about black history in Canada. And so I've been approaching the topic more generally on the subject of racism and otherness, and will continue to do so today. But in honor of Black History Month, I found a series of heritage moments. Last week, we did a timeline of black history in Canada, And today I have three minute-long vignettes of black history. All I wanted was to see a movie. One down, please. I can't sell downstairs tickets to you people. How dare they? I could afford to buy the more expensive ticket. I run my own business. (laughs) But they refuse to take my money. They left me there all night. On what charge? They said I didn't pay the theater tax. But it was really about color. Sister Desmond, appeal this conviction and your community will stand behind you. Do you have any idea what this will do to us? So what are you going to do? Make it right. 
Viola Desmond's case inspired Nova Scotia's civil rights movement. She was pardoned 63 years later based on the injustice of her conviction. Pa should have been here by now. He's three hours late already. Pa ain't gonna make it! One of them slave catchers got someone to help, but I just know it. Lisa, you both made it past the border yesterday. We've all done this before. He's our Pa. He'll be here. Come. Let's pray. No more prayers. Lisa! Lisa! Between 1840 and 1860, more than 30,000 American slaves came secretly to Canada and freedom. They called it the Underground Railroad. Hey, Mr. Ricky. Boys, I want you to meet someone. Outstanding athlete, a former second lieutenant in the United States Army, and your new second baseman, Jackie Robinson. Hi, gentlemen. He made no bar for you. And now batting for the Royals. Le deuxième the second baseman, Jackie Robinson. cheering Montrealers helped Jackie Robinson break baseball's color bar that year. He never forgot the city, but launched his journey to baseball's Hall of Fame. We're a community brought together by common interests, common ties, common quests, but we have become a community, supporting each other in good times and bad, and supporting this church. We are a self-supporting organization, and so we'll take an offering for the work of this church. But in addition to that, we always share one half of our loose cash collection with an outside organization. And for the month of February, we're supporting the iHuman Society, which is an inner city group that helps displaced youth come together for cultural events, for making music, for encouraging their artistic abilities and developing their human skills and their professional skills as well. It's a fabulous organization. We've supported it for a long time. I invite you to give generously and we'll listen to Oscar some more.
he plays almost faster than I can hear. I wonder, does he have like 12 fingers? Man, that's quick. Let us join in a responsive song for receiving the offering. Thank you. This morning we'll have both spoken and silent candles of care and connection. This is our time where anyone is welcome to come up and light a candle for a joy, a concern, something that's on their mind or in their hearts. And first I'll invite people who just wish to light silent candles, and then I'll invite anyone who wishes to speak. If you'd like to light a silent candle, please come forward now. Many joys, many concerns. As always in this room, many different opinions. We keep all these joys and all these concerns as our hearts as we worship together. I have a reading that's actually from one of Erica's social psychology textbooks that I want to share with you today. This is a section called Racism, Current Forms and Challenges. In 2003, Holocaust denier Ernst Zundel was deemed a threat to Canadian society and human rights. He was deported back to Germany in 2005. The outrage expressed by the Canadian people at Zundel's statements indicates that societal standards and values are changing, so that blatant racism is increasingly less acceptable. But racism can be much more subtle, lurking beneath surfaces and behind corners. We may see its shadow and not be sure of whether it's real or an apparition. Subtle, undercover forms of racism can be just as hurtful as more blatant forms, in part because their subtlety allows them to slip through people's defenses. A close examination of legislation, opinion polls, sociological data, and social psychological research indicates that racial prejudice has been lessening in North America over the last several decades, although it may yet be again on the rise. The election of Barack Obama has been seen by many, both within and outside the United States, as a significant sign of racial progress. By the way, this text was published before Trump. For example, a University of Washington student in a study by Cheryl Kaiser and others completed questionnaires about their perception of racial progress both before and soon after the election. And in only a span of a few weeks, the student's perception of racial progress increased significantly. The flip side of the coin, however, is that support for policies that address racial inequality decreased significantly. The authors found these findings troubling because, as they report, there are pervasive racial disparities in virtually all aspects of American society. Now, modern racism is a subtle form of prejudice that surfaces in direct ways whenever it is safe or socially acceptable or easy to rationalize. According to theories of modern racism, many people are racially ambivalent. They want to see themselves as fair, 
but they still harbor feelings of anxiety and discomfort concerning other racial groups. There are several theories of modern racism, but they all emphasize contradictions and tensions that lead to subtle, almost unconscious forms of prejudice and discrimination. Many whites who feel they are not prejudiced admit that on some occasions they do not react towards blacks or to other groups such as gay men as they should. An insight that causes them to feel embarrassed, guilty, and ashamed. Indeed, when they have reason to suspect that racism could bias their judgments, low prejudice whites may show an opposite bias, responding more favorably to blacks than to whites. Implicit racism, to contrast it from explicit racism, many scholars call racism that operates unconsciously or unintentionally implicit. Undetected by individuals who want to be fair and unbiased, implicit racism can skew judgments, feelings, and behaviors without inducing the guilt that more obvious forms would trigger. For example, Jennifer Eberhardt and others studied predictors of whether a criminal defendant was more likely to be sentenced to death. Examining more than 600 death penalty eligible cases in Philadelphia between 1979 and 1999, and parenthetically I would go, really, 600 cases in 20, anyway. These researchers found that in cases involving a white victim, the more the defendant's physical appearance was stereotypically black, the more likely he was to be sentenced to death. It is very unlikely that many of the judges or the jurors were consciously aware of this bias, but the evidence reveals significant discrimination. I'd like to invite you to join in singing hymn number 1024, When the Spirit Says Do, in the Teal Hymn Book, 1024.
That was your exercise in cultural discomfort. I'd like to say I did that deliberately because the job of the minister is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, but yeah, no, it wasn't the purpose. Social psychologists are quick to point out that we human beings have an ancient and ingrained habit of mistrusting others, strangers, people who are not us. It makes sense. During prehistoric times, and frankly well into the era of modern history, we lived under direct threat of having our resources taken, of being enslaved, raped, or killed by others who were more powerful than we were. The stranger, therefore, was never to be trusted. Now that still exists in some places. I recall how last fall you probably heard this story, a devoted young Christian missionary, after months of trying, finally was allowed to go to this isolated island off the coast of India. The resident tribe was historically notorious for keeping visitors out, for not opening their doors. And the young missionary arrived and was soon killed. Strangers aren't trusted. Now, today, a story like that earns headlines around the Western world because it seems odd and unusual, although it shouldn't. Tribal systems, some of which are strongly based on us versus them, are still present in many, many parts of the world. And we forget that for much of human history, that kind of behavior was the norm. Think it's not ingrained? How often do you notice a stranger who happens to walk past your home? How often are your suspicions raised when your doorbell is rung unexpectedly? How often do you go on alert when someone seems to be heading right for you in the middle of the street? It is an ingrained habit to be suspicious. Last week, I suggested that racism is actually a fairly new concept, a manufactured concept in human history, only dating back a couple of hundred years. It's not a real thing. There is only a small 5 to 10% genetic difference between the races. It is a false idea. However, looking at people as other and excluding them because of that is as old as the hills. And racism has simply become the dominant form of othering in the Western world. Now, I would expect that most of us in this room would not call ourselves racist. We don't, perhaps because we've never engaged in overt racism. We've never demeaned someone because of the color of their skin. Never refused to deal with them in stores or in medical clinics never told cruel jokes. And that's good. But the social psychologists who authored our reading point out that we have a large and sometimes underground issue. The society in which we live is implicitly and institutionally racist. It is the water in which we swim. And we're trying to change it. But it's hard because it is so pervasive. And there's lots of pushback from people who don't even think that this is racism at all. 
Caucasian people often don't even notice that they sometimes act on racist assumptions. It doesn't mean other cultures don't, but face it, in this country, Caucasian is still the dominant culture. So we don't, sometimes don't even notice that we're acting on racist assumptions or we fail to challenge racism in some of our social systems. But I promise you, people of color notice. And they're starting to speak up. Many First Nations people offer opinions that the truth and reconciliation process is moving far too slowly, that the dominant culture is failing to live up to the promises it made so publicly a few years ago. People of color are calling out institutions like police services over racial profiling and carding. And two years ago, Jesse Lipscomb made headlines by stopping and challenging a passenger in a car who cast a racial epithet in his direction. And it led to the Make It Awkward campaign here in Edmonton. The demand for meaningful change is getting out, and it is affecting us all, subtly. You see, I have this personal and very well-tested theory. Once you name a potential social or cultural change out loud, it becomes real. And it starts to have an effect on people's minds. And sure, some people will at first vehemently object or dismiss the idea, but ideas are persistent things. They don't die even when they start out as unpopular. And often, though painfully slowly, the idea begins to influence more and more people. doesn't always work for good, but as often as not, it does. Subversive ideas are like that. They change cultures. Just look at the first pride parade some decades ago. A handful of men in masks met and walked a block or two and then dispersed for fear for their lives. Now, it's Edmonton's largest street event of the summer. Ideas grow in our consciousness and over generations, and people are influenced a few at a time until it becomes a groundswell. To go back to my opening thoughts about otherness and tribal cultures, sure, that mistrusting, frightened world still exists. But because of education and social contact, it's less prevalent than it once was. Even with the upsurge of what's going on over immigration around the world, At core, I really, truly believe that there is less racism. It's just having this burst on the scene right now. Canada, for all of its faults, has become a leader in multiculturalism. Erna Paris, a legal writer who's written extensively on the International Criminal Court, said to a group of academics in a Toronto speech last spring about multiculturalism in Canada, Quietly, over the next decades after it was introduced in 1971, official multiculturalism lost its hokey qualities as well as its capital M and evolved into an ingrained collective value. Canadians began to define themselves as citizens of a multi-ethnic, multi-religious community. In 1985, when asked what made them proudest of their country, Canadians placed multiculturalism way down the list at number 10. By 2006, 21 years later, it was in second place above hockey. 
Somehow, multiculturalism had evolved into a shared identity, a loose identity, Canadian style. So, look at headlines about defaced or attacked mosques and synagogues, and it's obvious that we have a long way to go. Look at the social ills perpetually plaguing northern communities, and we know we have a long way to go. But we've also come a long way. Through education, discussion, and exposure to other cultures, through efforts of people of goodwill who are willing to learn about those cultural differences and build bridges, we are having some demonstrable success. Just look at the diverse groups of volunteers who go clean up those attacked synagogues and mosques. That's a big ray of hope for me, but we have a long way to go. The social psychology text I quoted in the reading by authors Kasson, Fine, Marcus, and Burke also explains strategies for reducing stereotypes, prejudice, and discrimination. And they lay out four commonly accepted theories within the psychological world. The first is intergroup contact. It's not enough to just put diverse groups into a room. That can be as awkward as a junior high mixer. The authors suggest that there are key conditions that are needed. Equal status, personal interactions, the need to achieve a common goal, and social norms. When these conditions are met, they write intergroup contact tends to be much more successful at reducing prejudice. In other words, when each member of this combined group is perceived as having worth and dignity, and when the group creates a new identity around a shared goal, like cleaning up a defaced religious institution, there is a better chance for success. We see, for example, rituals of the minority coming into play that allow this dynamic to change. That, that increasingly in government, for example, instead of sitting across the table for each other with all the power people and all of the supplicants, they're sitting in circles and they're smudging and they're sharing cultural values and finding out what each one needs and then trying to create a policy. It is very, very slow going because changing the culture of government is, oh God. <laughs> a long and involved job. But it's beginning, slowly. Second is the jigsaw classroom. And this is maybe the hope that graduates of the jigsaw classroom will find these new ways of interacting much easier a generation from now. The jigsaw classroom. Social scientists have long known that addressing stereotypes at a young age has far better outcomes. But they also know that the lessons are best learned by interaction with other peers rather than through lessons by teachers. Well, traditionally, classrooms have been competitive places, which is not conducive to developing the kinds of cooperation and goal sharing that will lessen prejudice and racism. So a new cooperative model was introduced into schools, including here in Edmonton. Curriculum is broken into chunks like pieces of a jigsaw. Students in a small group learn about their piece and then teach it to the others on their project. The early results suggest the development of compassion, the reduction in prejudice, and that there is an increase in self-esteem as well. 
As a parent from a different time, (laughs) I wonder if the kids are actually learning enough of the basics that were drilled into me, but time will tell. Cultural shifts are seldom easy for us to accept when you've lived all of your life with one style. And what's more important, high achievement in grades or more fully rounded citizens? I got to confess, the jury's still out for me. We'll see how the next generation fares in the world. The third is shared identities. Recent research has demonstrated that changing how group members categorize each other can reduce prejudice and discrimination in groups. For example, by putting groups together with shared common goals. This starts the process of decategorization if that goal can be made paramount. We rebuild the group around the common goal. Sports teams and military units are good examples where diverse individuals become a new recategorized group because of the mission they face. And I'm reminded of one of my very favorite football movies, Remember the Titans, with Denzel Washington, where this black coach is made the head coach of a white team in the United States during a period of forced integration. So the black high school team and the white high school team get merged. It isn't pretty. And the interesting strategy is that Denzel Washington's character, who is, this is a real figure, by the way, this is a real story, Coach Herman, makes all the kids hate him equally by incredibly intense rules and training and what have you. And once they hate him, they start winning, and then they have their shared goals, and life becomes pretty acceptable. They develop a shared identity that goes past racism. Finally, there's changing cultures and motivations. By changing the kinds of information perpetuated in one's culture, we alter how we perceive other social groups. Truth and reconciliation process is teaching white people how to learn in a different way. Many of us participated last year in the blanket exercise here in this room, and that showed us non-colonizer view of history. Many of us feeling it, touching it, sensing it for the first time. It was a powerful experience. Each new cross-cultural experience holds an opportunity for us to learn something and deepen our understandings and appreciation. And on a wider scale, as the general culture and norms change, we begin to promote values that are consistent with fairness and diversity and that are not consistent with prejudice and discrimination. We teach ourselves to see the world differently. For example, each Sunday, we acknowledge that we meet on Treaty 6 lands. Now, I'm sure that there are some people, probably many, who think this is faddish or tiresome as they run into it when it happens at City Hall, at football games, at hockey games, at the legislature, and in theaters. But it is a spoken reminder that we are in a time of relearning about First Nations and rediscovering a relationship with them. And one day, we might not need to do it anymore. But that day is not here yet. As Unitarian Universalists, we are well-situated to be leaders in this cultural shift. Why? Well, we have our seven principles to guide us. We've had them for decades. We're getting used to them now. The first of them offers a simple and incredibly complicated bit of guidance. 
We affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Now parse that for a moment. We don't just accept this idea of worthiness. We agree to promote it, to spread the word about each person's worthiness. And it's not just worthiness. It's inherent worthiness. It's in you. And that homeless guy on the street. And the woman escaping a battered relationship. And the women of color. And the recent immigrants from Syria and Somalia. And yeah, even those premiers who won't let us ship our oil to market. And the party leader we don't like. If we truly respect the words of the principle, then we are obligated to break down the walls between us as much as we can, as one person can. We are obligated to learn the stories about this other, their interests, their concerns, and where they're coming from. We don't have to agree in the end, but we are urged to see them as fully formed people intrinsically not different from us no better or worse than us. And racism cannot exist when we acknowledge the inherent worth and dignity of another person. Otherness fades into insignificance when we lift up this principle. But there's one short piece left to consider. Remember the reading about institutional and implicit racism? The core of this principle implies that we have a further obligation to examine and confront how we might be participating in those often unnoticed forms of racism. I mentioned last week that I cannot not see a person's color. It's not a point of pride, it's just a fact. But in living my Unitarian principles, I have an obligation to figure out how to get past that flaw in my character. I have to find a way to reach out, to learn more about my biases, more about the racism inherent in Canadian culture that I have absorbed, and then I have to figure out how to get past it. I have to learn how to be truly multicultural. And so do you. Amen. I have a community question that really comes from that last piece. How do you approach? This is a very loose question. How do you approach? How do you challenge? How do you understand your role in responding to racism in this place where we live? Take a couple of minutes to talk amongst yourselves. Twos, threes, groups of 47. Tough question, I know. See what you can do with it. Let us enter into a time of silence with these words by Rabindranath Tagore. Let me not pray to be sheltered from dangers, but to be fearless in facing them. Let me not beg for the stilling of my pain, but for the heart to conquer it. Let me not look for allies in life's battlefield, but to my own strength. Let me not crave in anxious fear to be saved, but hope for the patience to win my freedom. Grant me that I may not be a coward, feeling your mercy in my success alone, but let me find the grasp of your hand in my failure.
Let us embrace a time of silence. I want to tell you a story about our closing hymn before we sing it. It's number 1014 in the Teal Hymn Book. 
And you'll see the title very obviously is Standing on the Side of Love. Now, I've had the good fortune of being in a couple of workshops with my colleague Jason Shelton, who wrote this, a couple of music workshops, um, and including one here in Edmonton. And he told the story about how he happened to be in the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association's office one day on another matter when something happened. And I, frankly, I can't remember what the event was. But the president said, I'm sorry, Jason, I'm going to have to hold you off for a couple of minutes. This event's happened. I think it was the shooting, uh, one of the first well-publicized shootings of a, an unarmed black man. And he said, because our association has to stand with the people on this. And so Jason went off in a corner waiting while they wrote a press release, and the chorus sprang into his mind, standing on the side of love. It's a great metaphor. We can, most of us can just grab hold of that and go, yeah, I get it. And he wrote the hymn, and they said, yeah, we use that at the rallies. And they printed T-shirts. I have one in my office that says, standing on the side of love. And it was very popular for a year or so and then made it into the new hymn book and all of those good things. And then a group of people said, what about those of us who can't stand? Just pointing out one of those subtle forms of discrimination. It's unintentional. It's a, it's a really common metaphor. It's, but it does exclude some people. And Jason went, oh, no because he's that kind of guy. And he sat down for a little while and renamed the song officially to Answering the Call of Love. And that's what I'd like you to join in singing today. And there, I've been in congregations where they actually printed out little labels and changed it, but I'd much rather tell the story and then ask you to change the words yourself. So would you please rise and join, as you're able, and join in singing number 1014, Answering the Call of Love. Our chalice is extinguished. 
But its light lives on in the minds and the hearts and the souls of each one of you. Each one of you has the power to change the world just a fraction, just a snowflake on a branch. But we all know what happens when there are enough snowflakes on the branches. So carry the light of this chalice with you and share it with those you know, with those you love, and most especially with those you have yet to meet. I invite you to rise and join hands. We'll sing Carry the Flame of Peace and Love until we meet again. Thank you.